And as we begin a new year, it is fitting we begin in Exodus 15 with a new season, a new age for Israel. Officially now no longer captive, they're on the other side of the Red Sea, their first steps as a nation who has been freed by the works of the Lord. So, a new year, new steps, a new beginning, a new life for Israel before them. As we begin this new year together and we look at a text like this in God's sovereignty, the people cannot help but now freed from generations of captivity in Israel, they cannot help but to sing. Their hearts are so moved that they must stop and sing. God has just brought judgment upon the people that kept them captive. There's no sense that Egypt is going around the waters of the Red Sea to meet them on the other side to recapture them, though we know that was their heart's desire. That's why they pursued them. Their enemy is now at the bottom of the Red Sea. They don't take off running for the wilderness, through the wilderness to the promised land. Instead, they stop and they must sing to the Lord. Not simply Moses, but all of Israel joins together in this song to God. And perhaps you have had a season of your life in which you were so grateful, your heart was so moved by something someone did for you, so generous toward you, that there was nothing you could do but thank them. There was nowhere else in the world you'd rather be than to just show them your appreciation and gratitude for what they've done. That's where the people of God are now. No, they're not in the promised land, but their hearts are singing joyfully to the Lord. He has their lips and He has their life. This very first steps that they take in this first day in freedom as a freed people. Now, as you've looked at your bulletin probably already, I want to highlight a few things for us. And very literally in your bulletin, I've highlighted these things for you. So uh, though certainly I encourage you to follow along in your Bible if you brought that with you. And as we begin a new year, if you're new to reading the Bible and you don't have a Bible, take a pewback Bible home as a gift from us to you to be able to spend time in. But I think you'll benefit today from also following along in the bulletin. I've color-coded this for us. Now normally, as I've looked at these three threads that make up this song, and certainly our elder Ryan Finnerud, who read that for us, is gifted enough musically that he could have sang that with some kind of rhythm for us, but he didn't. He depraved us of that privilege. And because this is a song, instead of doing the normal putting in parentheses and giving us the different threads as they go throughout, I wanted to just copy and paste that text in there and highlight for us, and some of these could go either way, but I want to look at these three threads that we have throughout. And what we're going to do today as we preach and teach this text is we're just going to walk through it again, line by line, expounding on it. But let's look at these three threads before we actually walk through it. You'll see the components of this that are highlighted in yellow. Israel is moved now that they've been freed to sing of who the Lord is. If you were to put a word by that, you could just write in the word adoration or adore. We talk about it as part of our prayer life. We adore the Lord for who He is. This is different than praising God for what He's done in our lives. So we praise God, for example, naturally in Thanksgiving, we, we praise God for what He's done, how He's supplied our needs. Even through grief and sorrow, He's been present with us and in us and sustaining us. We thank God for His people He's provided in our lives. We thank God for giving us a mission and, and commissioning us in it to make disciples of Jesus Christ for His glory. So we thank God for what He's done, but adoration, this first component, this 
what we've highlighted in yellow, we thank God for who He is. This is God's attributes. This is who the Lord is. And that's what Israel does. And you'll, so you'll notice a thread as you just look at that back of that bulletin. A few of those I've highlighted in yellow where Israel is, mixes in to the verses of their song to God, who the Lord is. Second, in blue, we've highlighted who the Lord is to His creation and to His chosen people. This is, these are the things that God has done. They've done for the believers. So the believers will look at the Lord and, and Israel will move and call them the God of our salvation. God has supplied salvation for them. But also we'll see some components, and, and I've underlined one of those as well, just underline the blue section, of who the God is, who God is to creation as a whole. So there's the pagan nations that have not yet come to know the Lord Yahweh. They've heard of His judgments in Egypt and the plagues. They've not yet met Him, but they're trembling. That's who the Lord is to them. And Israel is moved to sing about that because it's a good thing. And then finally in green, we've got these portions where Israel and Moses are moved to do these things because they know who the Lord is. They know what the Lord has done. They see that all of these things can't just stay boxed up. They have to unflow and, and overflow from Israel's life. And so Israel, within this song, contains several different threads of what they're going to do because of the Lord that they know and the Lord who acts in history. So let's walk through this text together as we indeed compare in this first Sunday of 2022. We will have an opportunity to look back at our next steps of gratefulness of how we also in our lives have opportunity to sing and to consider the threads of praise that should mark our lives as we look at these components. Let's walk back through this in the very first verse. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. But the idea is that they must sing. Moses is leading this, but immediately the people are with him. So this isn't just Moses' idea and the rest of Israel is like, okay. So I don't know, if, if you're a teenager here, it's very possible that you didn't want to come to church today. It's po I know that's crazy. You're kind of thinking like, what? I mean, there's nowhere else I'd rather be on the only cold day of the year, hopefully. And so it was your parents' idea, perhaps, to, to have you to come today, and you're like, okay. That's not the picture here with Israel. They've just been freed from captivity, and they're on the other side of the Red Sea, and even though Moses is, we could say, on the stage helping to lead the people, it's this big cohort. Everybody is a congregation. All of their hearts are all in this together. The only distinction is that Moses and then later Miriam will lead the ladies in singing this other portion. But all of Israel, men and women, are joined in singing this song. And it's a reminder for us also today in the New Covenant, as we gather together as a church, we're reminded of this similar scene that, uh, that when we have our call to worship portion, that there's a consensual component of praise that's taking place. That those gifted musically that are leading us in song, they're not singing to us or for us. And as a congregation, they're leading us and singing what our heart is in full agreement of. And our voices echo these truths of this praise to the one who's consuming these things, the Lord God. So who's receiving the praise of the Lord or the praise of the people? God is receiving the praise of His people. This is important for us to grasp right here at the very beginning. Because what we're going to see in the book of Isaiah and so many of the prophets that are going to come in later generations, what's the accusation going to be toward Israel? 
You see, Israel has not yet entered into the promised land. They haven't even received the sacrificial laws. They've got all these animals with them. They've not yet sacrificed them. They've not made any grain offerings. No sin offerings have been offered in this way besides the lamb on the other side back in Egypt. They've not yet begun sacrificing, but they've already begun serving the Lord with their hearts and their lips. And God is pleased. But part of the accusations that God will make by way of the prophets to Israel in the coming generations is that they, yes, he says, you sacrifice with your animals. Yes, you even sacrifice with your lips. But your hearts, Israel, are far from me. But right here on the very first day, the Lord has their lips and the Lord has their hearts in service. And this is good. And so the text continues on. I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. Ga'ogah. The Lord is glorious, glorious. The triumphant one. He's glorious. The horse and his rider, the chariots, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord has done these things. Now, now look there in your Bibles. Look in your Bibles. Or if you're looking in the back of the bolt, then just copy paste it from the ESV. What's the Lord there? They're all capitalized, aren't they? L-O-R-D. And in English, that's helpful for us to be able to look. And it's a, it's a hint to us to say this is the personal name of the Lord. This is Yahweh, the Lord God. Not just a God, but the God who is known. The God in creation. The specific God. Now, His name is going to be mentioned in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Hebrew Scriptures, 6,800 times. 6,800 times. So who is Israel singing to? Are they singing to a God? No. They're singing to the God that has led them out of captivity. There is a specific God who is the one true God. That's why in Exodus we've seen the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. They're singing to the God who's led them free from captivity. They're not singing to the pagan gods of the Egyptians that Yahweh just humiliated. They're not singing to the God of the, of the Philistines who are north of the Red Sea that God refused to let them go through. They're not singing to the God of the Moabites down here south of Israel. They're not singing to the God of the Canaanites that are presently in the promised land of Israel. They're singing to the one true God. Not a God. The one true God. Not the God of the Mormons. Not the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're singing to the one true God. And through Jesus Christ, we know Him. The eternal begotten Son who's taken on flesh. We know Him. Israel sings to Yahweh the Lord God. And their praise is to the one that's actually delivered them. Do you know Him? They say in this way, that the Lord, He is my strength and my song, and He will become my salvation. So who is the Lord to His creation? He is their salvation to His people. This is my God, and I will praise Him. So because He is that, what will they be led to do? They will be led to praise Him. Praise will be on the lips of Israel. They can't contain it like soda that's shaken up. They can't help but, but want to fizz forth praise to God. It's who they are. Because of what the Lord has done, they can't help but praise and do what? My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. That's who He is. Who is the Lord? He is their Father's God. He's the faithful God who's made a covenant promise to Abraham. Traditions are powerful, aren't they? They are. You know one of the reasons that Christmas Eve services are so very influential? Do you know why? 
It's because many kids and grandkids that no longer have much to do with the Lord are back at grandma or mom's house. And they're going to go to church to make the family happy. It's tradition. Now, tradition can be certainly a good thing. Absolutely. But what Israel and Moses is saying here is that we're praising the God of our fathers. It's not this sense that it's just some dead tradition. But they're saying the same faith that Abraham had, the same promise rooted in Yahweh the Lord God, we're worshiping and praising this day, free from Egypt, the same God who made a promise. We're worshiping the same God and the same covenant faith promise that we have. They're not simply rejoicing because it's the same, they're doing the same thing that the previous generations did, but their promises and their hope and faith is in the same God. In Timothy, Paul refers to it as the, 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 the handed down faith delivered to the saints. It's the same gospel message. It's the same good news. So again, family is important and traditions are great and powerful, but there are many people, and you know them, there are many people that choose an allegiance and a consistency to many unhealthy churches because their great-grandma or grandpa would roll over in their grave, they would say, if they ever stopped going there. So what they're celebrating and Israel singing with joy is that even though they've spent generations in captivity, they know the same God who is faithful to His promises, the once and for all delivered faith to the saints. This is going to be a theme that we'll see in the coming chapters. The importance of Israel entrusting the faith to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And from the very first steps, there's rejoicing because indeed that faith has been passed down to their generation. And they stand on the other side of the Red Sea with bodies floating or sunk in the water. And they say, thank you, God. You're faithful to your promises. The same God, the same faith is ours. So I'm going to encourage you in this, in addition to how we as believers are moved and called to be able to train up the next generation. So if you're a mom or dad or a grandparent, we want to equip you to make sure you're confident and competent to pray with your kids, to have family worship with your kids. And as a church, alongside of that, we have a responsibility to entrust the faith to the younger generation. So I want to encourage you, if you don't have somebody that you're actively pouring into that's younger than you, I want to encourage you to pray about, take a Connect card and pray about this semester serving with our, our Grace Bible little kids or our kids ministry or refuge ministry. Or sign up for Adopt-A-Jack as well. Look for an opportunity to entrust the faith to the next generation. Pour into them. It's a part of Israel's song of joy. This gives them such a great confidence and a hope in what they're doing that their courage and their confidence is in the Lord. Look how this flows into verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. We've got this attribute that follows right after it. The Lord is a man of war. The New American Standard and the New International Version translate this how we would normally say it. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a mighty warrior. The Lord is a man of war. That's who the Lord is. What's that mean? Does it mean God is looking out for a fight? Is He somebody that's contentious, just waiting for somebody to mess up? No, the Lord is a mighty warrior. Meaning, 
that He's uncompromising in His holiness. He's faithful. He's just. You think about what this will translate into Israel's life. Does Israel have a city yet? Does Israel have walls to protect them at night? Does Israel have a mighty army yet? Have they been training in Egypt? Boot camp? No. They're incredibly vulnerable in every sense of the word, except for one. Their God is a mighty warrior. Let's say that together. Our God is a mighty warrior. And what this does is it fills Israel with confidence. Not some pseudo-fake confidence where we look at the beer and say, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and people like you. But a true confidence because the Lord has proven Himself. The world superpower of Egypt is at the bottom of the sea. Our Lord is a mighty warrior. And it's the same type understanding and faith, listen, that will mark Israel in her glory days of old. It's the same thing that David will say when he looks across Goliath. David's confidence isn't in his own abilities. His confidence is because he says the battle is the Lord's and he strikes David with a fatal blow and cuts his head off. Because his God is a mighty warrior. The Philistine that's mocking him, even though he's a giant, is nothing compared to the God who is glorious, glorious. It says in verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. This is what happens when even the world's strongest man goes against the God who is a mighty warrior. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Doug Stewart's Exodus commentary it's quite helpful here. And if you're looking for a book to pick up to, as we continue on in the book of Exodus, his, Doug Stewart's commentary on Exodus is really well done. It's very approachable. It's very helpful. It's also the New American commentary. The, the book is called Exodus. Very helpful for us. But it's a New American commentary, which also acronymed is what? It's knack. It's perfect. It's a great Christmas gift to get and to follow along if you're looking for a helpful commentary as we go through Exodus. But one of the notes that he makes here, speaking of the, the idea of the Lord's right hand, glorious in power, is he references several of these idiomatic representative statements of the hand of God. We've talked about this a little bit, the hand of God. And we'll see more about the arm of God, the reach of God. So God doesn't have a body like us, but the Bible gives us a lot of this anthropomorphic, it's human language to help us understand about God. And so it speaks of the arm of God, the power of God, the hand of God. And in that commentary, listen to what he references, these verses. He says, the hand of God, the power has already been seen. And, and you can write these down, but in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Exodus chapter 7, 4 and 5. Exodus chapter 9, verse 15. Chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 9. Chapter 13, verse 14. And chapter 14, 30 through 31. What he points out here is that the hand of the Lord has always been working through the plagues upon Egypt. And so even though the God who's worked the plagues upon Egypt is now leading his people outside of Egypt, his hand is still upon them. He's still protecting them. 
What a comforting reminder for the people of God. He's glorious and all his enemies will be shattered. We look at verse 7. He says, in the greatness of your majesty, they sing. So God is majestic and great, this attribute of God. And what has he done? You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. We remember in this way our context that God will judge every evildoer, every single deed. Do you remember the context? In their song of praise, they say God will judge every evildoer. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. How many years has it been since Moses tried to lead a revolt? It's been 40 years. 40 years. Do we have any 40-year-olds here? Is anybody 40 years old? Would you be brave enough to stand up? Anybody that's exactly 40? You're like, all right, wonderful. Hey, thank you for Very good. Wonderful, wonderful. So in this example, when she was born, would have been when Moses fled for his life. What has Israel been doing in that time? They've been under brutal slavery in Egypt. The entirety of her life as she aged, she has known nothing but captivity. Do you think it's possible that her heart could have grown bitter and say, God, why didn't you act further, faster? Why did you take so long to act? Is that what Israel sings? No. They sing that God is faithful and just and glorious. God's timing doesn't always match up to our timing. But God is just. All wickedness will be made right. The people of God, when they're delivered, are not looking and saying, why God not earlier? They're moved with joy as they understand that God is working and His timing is even better. That's what they sing. Look what it says in verse 8 and how this is unfolded. Look at the imagery. At the blast of your nostrils. Remember what happened when they crossed the Red Sea? The mighty wind would flow in. I believe it said from the east and the waters separate. The imagery of the song. The blast of your nostrils. The waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand will, shall destroy them. Remember what Egypt said when they saw Israel? Let's get them. What have we done? We've lost our servants. Get them. Even though the waters are there, like a deer in heat, they pursue. And they would run right into their graves. And they sing together Israel in verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And look at the praise of the attributes of God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? It is the holy otherness of God that marks the people's song. They look at Israel and they say, and they've been educated in the way of the Egyptian gods. And they look at their God, Yahweh. And they say, you are like no other God. You are holy other. And this is what gives a Christian fellowship with another Christian 
that is deeper than every bond of this earth. Even though Israel is now made up of this greater mixed multitude that has left Egypt, they have a greater bond together because they know the Lord. It's why somebody that's 75 years old that knows the Lord can have a deeper fellowship with a teenager that's also a believer than they might their very spouse that's an unbeliever that they were married to for 50 years. It's because their relationship, their friendship is bonded in the holy other God. Rooted and anchored. It's a gift that God gives His people. Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? It goes on at the end of verse 11. Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. You have led in your steadfast love, the faithfulness of God. You kept your covenant. You promised to bring us into a land and you've taken this big step for us. The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them. How? By your strength. To where? To your holy abode. Even though, God, you heard our groaning when we were in Egypt, you've now taken us up and taken us out to bring us into the promised land where we will be with you. We can make a mistake, even as New Covenant believers, to think that heaven is heaven simply because we'll be delivered from this body of death and temptation. And it's true, that is a big part of what heaven will be. But Israel understands right on the other side of the Red Sea when delivery is fresh that what makes the abode the abode and in the promised land the promised land is a tight relationship with their Lord God. You have delivered us and brought us into your promised holy abode. What makes heaven heaven, believer, is an unbreakable fellowship in totality with God, your creator and sustainer, the God who knows you and loves you more than you could imagine as demonstrated and executed on the cross. Israel understands this on the other side of the Red Sea. Reconstituted Israel today will never know peace without knowing Jesus the Messiah and King. But all who will know the Messiah and King will have peace because they know the Lord. It moves them to sing, even though you're, they're yet not in the promised land. In verse 14, look what they say of those that don't know the Lord. Look, this is good. This is part of their song. Okay? This is part of their song. Remember, they're not yet in the promised land, but look at their song in verse 14 through 16. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, we think of the Philistines. And now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of, of Canaan have melted away. Of Canaan, Terror and dread fall upon them. Note how the unbelieving creation is impacted by the Creator. They're shaking in terror. Terror and dread fall upon them. I had a friend a wise older woman who was a hospice nurse. And she would share about, sometimes she, she'd call these things, these, I had a, it was a good one. I was like, what? 
She was talking about sometimes being there uh, with a believer that was dying on their hospice bed. And she would talk about these believers would have this otherworldly peace often about them. And she would contrast that to those that did not know the Lord. Speak of a text like this. I don't think knowingly with this text in her mind. But she would speak often of those that do not know the Lord. She'd say, you could tell in their eyes the terror and the dread that marked them as they were approaching their final breath. Israel sings of this reality that the pagan nations, knowing that Israel and their delivering God is coming through, terror shakes them because they do not know Him. To which we ask, do you know Him? And if you don't know Him in Christ, you can. See, the terror shakes them because they do not know the Lord God who is coming through them. And what's this do? The text says, because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Which the character of God and the way that the Lord acts is doing what for God's people? It's giving them a confidence. Even though they don't have a strong military. Even though they're going through these nations with incredibly more power. They have incredible confidence. Because those people are shaking in terror. Their confidence is because God is great, not because they are great. Their hope and their peace and all that they have is because of the greatness and the delivering power of God. That's what we saw last week a little bit when we looked in Joshua chapter 1 and 2. When they get into Jericho, the people are filled with terror because they do not know the Lord. Even though Israel is terrified at what's before them, this mighty city with these mighty walls. Believer, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart need not be filled with terror. Even though the deacon Stephen will be martyred, he has more peace than the people that pick up the stones to kill him. His God is still a mighty warrior, even though he would breathe his last breath there. That's the peace and the confidence that is yours, believer, in Christ. Because your God is a mighty warrior. And all these things, as we unpack these, it gives us a hope. You see, so as we tie these threads together in the song, God's word in the song doesn't segment them. They're all woven together. When you know the Lord, you will see and notice how the Lord is working. And this will give you a confidence that he will work through you in the days to come. That's all these threads are woven through this song. He says, they are still as a stone Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your people pass by. And what about the people in blue there? Whom you have purchased. They are a purchased people. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a purchased person. Do you think the Lord's going to return you? No. Israel had confidence because they were a purchased people. It says in verse 17, you will bring them in and you'll plant them on your own mountain. They know exactly where they're going. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Why? Because he's the eternal, all-powerful, everlasting God. His reign does not come to a conclusion. 
In verse 19, For when the horses of Pharaoh with their chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. This is their song. And now there's a special music. It's like a show tunes here. All the ladies now of Israel start coming forward. Look in verse 20. Miriam. Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, is going to lead all the ladies to sing this special component. Who's Miriam? Mark in your Bible Exodus 2 as a reminder. You remember back in Exodus 2? Miriam is the sister of Aaron and Moses. Miriam is this brave young woman. This brave little girl. That even though they put Moses in the reeds, she would sit back and watch. And when Pharaoh's daughter came and found the little Moses in this little ark, she would be the brave one that would come forward and say, I can, I can help you with the baby. I can find somebody to nurse the baby. And she would hold Moses in her arms and she would take him back to his mother. And she would wean him for several years until she was fully, he was fully weaned. That Miriam now is a grown woman. A very grown woman, right? She's probably 80s. And in her 80s, she leads the women to sing. And what does she sing? Great is Moses. Moses has delivered us. Is that what she sings? No. Because she knows who Moses is. She knows who she is. She knows who Israel is. She knows of the greatness of the plagues of what God has worked to deliver them. What does she sing? Miriam took out a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. Does she sing to Moses? No. Is she belittling Moses by not singing to him? No. But she knows that this is all the fingerprints and the glory of God. That's the greatness of our God. Israel does not have a home. They're still in their wilderness. But they can't help but sing to God. Their life is not easy. But they cannot help but sing to the glory of God. What about us? What about you? What about me? What about Grace Bible Church? We cannot help if we'll simply pause and rest and sing of the glory of God. In every one of our lives, God has used different people to come in and to tell us about Jesus. And so we thank that person for the Lord using them to help deliver us and give us understanding. But our praise ultimately goes to the Lord God of our salvation. That's what Israel does. That's what Moses does. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to look over in your Bibles to Revelation 15. In Revelation chapter 15, we have the seven final bowls of wrath, the seven plagues that in this great climactic tribulation will be poured out. Five of these seven plagues are the same plagues that we see in Egypt. A few distinctions that we see in the comparison of these, those, 
So as good Bible students, we look, and the more we're familiar oftentimes with the Old Testament, when we come to the book of Revelation, we see so many, that sounds, hey, we talked about that. That sounds just like that, maybe a little different, but very similar. Now, the plagues upon Egypt are regionalized upon the unbelievers in Egypt. But the plagues that are going to happen, the climactic ultimate plagues, are global in their reach. Even though many of the believers have already died and they've experienced the judgments that were taking place, here they are. We get this scene here before these plagues are all unleashed. And just in a similar way as Israel, the plagues were used to deliver Israel to bring judgment upon the unbeliever. The song is saying at the end. But in Revelation chapter 15, the song is saying before the full plagues are poured out. Because the victory and the judgment of God are so certain and sure. Look what we have, and we'll just start in chapter 15, verse 1, but we're going to key in on verse 3 and 4. John, the seer, he says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, so this presence, this glorious holy presence of God, mingled with fire, with judgment. And all those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass in the presence of God with harps of God in their hands. Look at this song. They don't have a tambourine, but they have these harps. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Do you remember how Israel exited Egypt? You remember how a lamb played a part there? This lamb, pure lamb, the blood of the lamb helped deliver them. Now in this scene in Revelation 15, they sing the song of the lamb, the Lord Jesus. And what do they sing? Listen to the same themes in Exodus 15 we all just read. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, the glory of your name and glorify your name? For you alone are holy and all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. The greatness and the glory of God. He is a global God. There is one hope for all the nations and all the peoples. And whether God pours out His plagues of wrath or the sweetness of the gospel, the good news that goes forth to the ends of the earth, God will receive glory and honor and praise. And for as long as God has given and will give breath to each and every one of us as a congregation, we will proclaim His glory in every season because He is worthy. Amen? He's worthy. Our God is a mighty warrior, glorious and victorious. Rest in Him. As we come to our next steps, we're reminded first of the reality that if His people are too busy to pause and to praise Him in song, we're too busy, right? We're too busy. He's worth prioritizing the time to pause and to praise. So a very simple question open-ended to you would be, what adjustments might you need to make in 2022 to, to better celebrate and enjoy the Lord? Enjoy the Lord and what He's done. Enjoy gathering with His people. Enjoy singing His praises. Enjoy sharing meals with one another. Enjoy serving in mission. Enjoy the Lord. And secondly, God's people are a choir made to sing His praises. That's so what I would challenge you to do this day, January 2nd. 
would be to look at these three threads in your own life. Look back at 2021 and these three threads. And just write out some verses of who the Lord is. Write out some ways in which the Lord has delivered you and watched over you and protected you and sustained you. And write out in that what those things ought to spill over in your life. How should those truths of who God is and what God has done give you confidence and hope and peace and joy for the year that is to come? To do all the works the Lord has set apart for us that we will walk in with joy and gladness. And finally, in that way, if there's a way that we can be in prayer for you at the beginning of this new year, we want to do that. We'll have ministry leaders right here at the end of the service. But you use that Connect card. It says, how can we serve you? You write on that any way that we can be in prayer for you or encouraging you. As you consider how to spend time in God's Word this week, the week-to-week this week, that email will have a, just a number of Bible reading plans. As you make time to just spend time in the Lord's Word, I encourage you to read God's Word at least four times a week. There's so many good ones to spend, but the idea is that you're spending time with the Lord in His Word. Making time to sing His praises. Because is He worthy? He is. Would you stand with me as He sing indeed His praises, Christ our hope in life and death.